Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you folks, and uh, it's a privilege to be here with you and to uh, bring the word. Uh, I have a strong affection in my heart for your body and your people. I bring you uh, greetings from Cornerstone Christian Fellowship, and uh, the elders and saints there greet you in Jesus' name and are really pleased to have me here today and to, um, uh, to enjoy the connection that we share together. So, uh, yeah, this trip to annual conference will be fun. Um, this elder from our church is going, and, uh, yeah, he's a graduate of the Ohio State University Law School, and so he's like Ohio State everything, and Josh is Michigan everything, and um, I did the, the logistics this year, so Josh is rooming with Barry, which um, which will be fun. I'm not planning on breathing, bringing either one home, uh, so <laughs> that, that'll be interesting. Thanks for having me here today. I'm excited to uh, talk to you about what I think is, is a core um, to what it means for us to be not just Christians, but for what it means for us to be uh, the church. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 18. Forgiveness tends to be a thing that we think of as a tool. Um, We tend to use it when we need it. If a situation arises in our lives that requires some kind of uh, attention, you know, if, if, if you offend me in, in a really bad way or if I offend you in a really bad way, um, and, and, we, and we have levels as far as how we work usually when it comes to the concept of forgiveness. So like um, uh, what, what might be a, a very forgivable offense that you commit to me, if it's committed to you or committed to someone else, might be might be a huge deal, has a lot to do with our story, has a lot to do with where we came from, has a lot to do with how we live our lives. And, and so we tend to use forgiveness as a tool. We, and, and when we need, when there's a big offense, when someone comes to us to ask for forgiveness, we, we go to our toolbox, we pull out forgiveness, we know how this thing sort of works, we think, and then we sort of like use it at that point in time, then we put it back, back in the toolbox. And if, if a situation arises three or four times in the course of a year that requires for you to have a difficult conversation, conversation with somebody that ends with someone asking forgiveness and another person giving it, um, that in and of itself can be a rough year, particularly if it's the same relationship. Uh, But we have this toolbox of spiritual things that we go and we get and we use. Um, Forgiveness, though, needs to be rethought. And I'm coming to you today with, uh, with, I hope, a different way, particularly from a definition standpoint of thinking about forgiveness. Because I, I, it's, it's my contention that the fact that we use forgiveness as a tool is the problem. Um, we tend to use forgiveness as a gesture. You know, here's, okay, so there, we have this thing, there's an issue, and I'm going to make a gesture of forgiveness. What we're going to see with Jesus' teaching is that actually um, forgiveness is never meant to be gestured. Uh, it's, forgiveness is meant to be a posture. It's supposed to be a posture of our heart. It's supposed to be something that we walk in continuously. Forgiveness is meant to be a mark of the human life. Here's a true statement. I am a broken, fallen person. Here's another true statement. You are a broken, fallen person. Relationships is how we live our lives. So the human-on-human contact that we have, and it can be from a very close relationship, like a husband and wife. It can be not so close, you know, uh, uh, co-workers maybe or your acquaintances. It can be complete and perfect strangers. You have the ability to offend one another because I'm a fallen, broken human. You're a fallen, broken human. And, and here we are, right, 
and our two worlds meet. And so if it's this very intense relationship, like a, like a marriage, I mean, a posture of forgiveness is an absolute necessity. But it can also be with the person that cuts you off in traffic, right? Who absolutely sinned against you. Particularly if you cut me off in traffic, you know, I have been sinned against. And frankly, I oftentimes respond even stronger to the stranger than I do to the people close to me when it comes to the offense, because it's easier to be offended by somebody you don't know than it is by somebody that, 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 that you do. Or maybe not, right? Or maybe we just play games with each other. Maybe we have these unwritten rules and sort of like secret ways of dealing where you can touch this but don't touch this and the closer you get to someone the more you learn their rules all right but every once in a while you'll step over some of these unspoken things some of these secret things or when it gets really dark is when like particularly in close relationships friendships marriages parenting relationship those kinds of things you know that there's a thing you know that there's a rule you know that there's a mark you know that there's a boundary and this, the relationship can get so heated that things can get so intense that you actually intentionally step over it. And you intentionally offend, if for no other reason than to wake the person up. Right? That's called manipulation. We're broken, fallen people. You know, We are manipulative. We're, 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 when my brokenness meets your brokenness in all kinds of the creative ways that it does, it produces what the scriptures would call offense. Right? Sin. This should be something that we're not massively surprised by, but it usually becomes something that is a big deal. If you need to sit down with somebody over coffee and have a tough conversation, and you know what this is like, right? You get a phone call from somebody, hey, can we talk? What do you want to talk about? Ah, I, you know, I just want to, well, then you know that something happened, right? A few weeks earlier, you get that weird feeling in your gut. You're not sure what this conversation is going to be like. You hope it goes a certain way. If you end that conversation, the conversation was about something completely different. You're really happy about it. If you've got to walk through the situation where it's weird and things are tense and you've got to talk about offense and you've got to ask forgiveness or if you're defensive when the offense comes. And, I mean, defensiveness doesn't help anything. But we all do what when we've offended someone? We tend to get defensive. Right? All of these dynamics and craziness, all of this stuff, Jesus has given us not a tool, but a posture by which to live our lives in the messiness of actual human-on-human, flesh-on-flesh relationships that is a fallen, broken person with another fallen, broken person so that when things do arise, when offense does happen, when sin happens, Jesus offers us this beautiful, freeing tool. The problem is, is that we've twisted it. You see, I like to think of myself as not fallen and broken, and so do you. And I expect you to not be as fallen and broken as I am. But if you are, then I'm going to be offended by it, right? And you're going to expect me to not be as fallen and broken as I am. Hopefully we can both get over our fallenness and brokenness so that we can live in this beautiful relationship where there's no offense. You know what the word for that is? Inauthentic, right? Bogus, superficial. But most of our relationships exist like this because we're afraid of getting into the mess with each other. Because getting into the mess means that our fallenness and brokenness hits each other time and time again, and we don't have good ways to deal with it. But Jesus actually gives us a good way to deal with it. It's just that we've misdefined it. We forget about it, and we lose it. And when we forget about it and lose it, then we forget about and lose the key redemptive way that Jesus would have us live with one another. You can't just have a vertical relationship with God. It is not enough for you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
Jesus said the second great commandment is like unto it, that you love your neighbor as you love yourself. On everything hangs these two things. Loving your neighbor as you love yourself requires us to adopt not a gesture of forgiveness, but a posture of forgiveness. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Right? If you we were reading this in the original language, it would read like this. If your brother sins against you, and he most certainly will. Right? If your brother sins against you, and he most certainly will, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done. For them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Right? This is a seriously relational five verses that we're hearing from Jesus here. This is about brother offending brother. This is about relationships. This is about people being in community together with Jesus. Right? When an offense happens, it's pretty clear how you handle it. Jesus makes this a very black and white concept. If you're offended, then it is your job to take that and to have a conversation with the person. One to one. Look. This thing got broke. I was hurt by what you said to me, or I was hurt by the way that, that this happened, or I was hurt by this or that. If the person blows you off, that's not the end of it, because the offense is real. The offense actually happened, and the offense needs to be noted and dealt with the way that Jesus wants it to. So you take a brother or sister with you. If they still don't listen to it, if they still won't receive it, then you go to the third step, which is to take it to the church, which is, it, which is interesting for Jesus to say, right? Because as, as of Matthew 18, there is no such thing as the church. Right? Acts 2 is when the church starts. But Jesus is not thinking of the church the way that we think of the church. When Jesus thinks of the church, he's thinking about his people, his called out ones. The ones that he has called, Jesus does not think buildings, he does not think programs, he does not think institution on any level for any reason. Jesus only thinks about his, listen, family. The church, more than anything else, is a family. Right? God is our Father, Jesus is our eldest brother, the Holy Spirit unites us together as brothers and sisters within the family of God. And there's an assumption that you are going to offend and that you are going to be offended, that you are going to sin against other people and that you are going to be sinned against by other people. And so Jesus says, this is how you handle it when offense happens, and it most certainly will. And then he throws out this phrase, Whatever you bind in heaven will be bound. Whatever you loose will be loosed. Right? And his disciples would have known exactly what he was talking about. Right? This is rabbi language. This is teacher language. For a rabbi to be a rabbi, it means he binds and looses all the time. See, the whole Jewish tradition was centered around Torah, around the first five books of Moses, the law, over 600 commands about what it means for the Jews to be the people of God together. Rabbis would study the Torah endlessly and would argue the Torah endlessly, right? And each rabbi would have a specific interpretation of how to live out the Torah in their world. 
Each rabbi had followers, disciples, just like Jesus did. Right? Jesus was a rabbi. He had followers. And so this interpretation, this way of thinking about how to be the people of God, the way that God has told us to be the people of God, this is a, this is a, a rabbi's teaching. And if you're following a rabbi, you are bound to that teaching. So the way a rabbi would teach would be to say, I bind you to this. For example, uh, the rabbi, let's say I bind myself to uh, rabbi, or I follow Rabbi Kushner. He would say, you have heard it said that you need to ceremonially clean before the Passover. So I bind you to the interpretation of this teaching to say that what that means is you take an eggshell full of water, you drip it over your fingers, you let it run off your elbow, and it air dries. That way you don't work on the Sabbath. You are bound to this, right? To this teaching, because he is my rabbi, I follow him. That means before the Passover, I cleanse myself like this. Let's say Rabbi Kushner dies, right? And so now I take upon myself the following of another rabbi, another teaching, or Rabbi Kushner moves, and another rabbi comes into our synagogue, right? And he will say this. You have heard it said that to ceremonially cleanse yourself before the Passover is take an eggshell full of water and pour it over your fingers and let it drip off your elbow and let it air dry. That way you don't work on the Sabbath. But I say unto you that to ceremonially cleanse yourself means you take a damp cloth, you rub yourself down, and then you air dry before the Passover, and then you won't be working on the Sabbath. Does this language ring a bell? You have heard it said... But I say unto you, Jesus says three times in the Sermon on the Mount this phrase, you have heard it said, do not commit murder. But I say unto you, if you look upon your brother with hatred in your heart, you've already murdered him. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say unto you, to look at a woman with lust in your heart is to have already committed adultery with her. Right? Jesus is binding and loosing. He is saying that you thought about God and being his people like this. I am telling you that it should be like this. Don't take upon yourself the yoke of the Pharisees. That is heavy and burdensome and imprisoning. Take upon yourself my yoke, which is what? Easy and light. You'll find mercy and grace for your souls. Binding and loosing. This is what rabbis do for Jesus to tell his disciples that they are binding and loosing. And he does it again in Matthew 16, two chapters earlier. Right? Upon this rock I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind will be bound. Whatever you loose will be loosed. For the disciples to receive this, uneducated fishermen, tax collector, political zealot, all kinds of crazy people in Jesus' crew. And he's telling them, I am giving you authority. I am giving you the ability to know me, to know, my, to know my teaching, to know how I want you to live, and to take that into the world with authority, and to bind people to who I am, and to loose people from things that they should not be. Right? This is Jesus. And so now the question becomes, okay, Jesus, so how do we bind and loose? Like, what do you want us to bind and loose? And in typical Jesus fashion, he drives right into the next thing. Peter asks a great question, right? Verse 21. Lord, because, again, don't forget the context. He's talking relationships. He's talking messiness. He's done five verses of you're going to be offended. When you're offended, deal with it like this. Then deal with it like this. Then deal with it like this. Binding, loosing, in the context of relationship together, Jesus is in the midst. So they're understanding this exactly the way that Jesus would have them understand it from the concept of forgiveness. Offense has happened. So Jesus, Peter asks in verse 21, do we listen to what the Pharisees said? The Pharisees say, 
that we should forgive our neighbors seven times if we're offended by them. Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times seven, which means you're still not allowed to count the 490, right? You, it's just, you, you don't stop because you live in a posture of forgiveness. Jesus is saying, not seven times of going to your toolbox and pulling it out. Okay, fine, you hurt me. Okay, fine, you hurt me too. Fine, hurt me, get the seven. I'm done with you. You're not my enemy, we're cut off, right? Because forgiveness is not a toolbox. It's not a tool in the toolbox. Forgiveness is a posture of your heart, which is what Jesus gets to in verse 21. Then Peter came and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had made and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Did you catch that? So also, my heavenly Father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Which tells us where forgiveness happens. Which means you're not allowed to lie. Right? You can't say I forgive you and not have your heart actually turned back toward that person. Because when offense happens, I mean, your heart turns away, right? Your heart gets hurt. Your heart gets wounded. It turns or a wall comes up or self-protection. To forgive from the heart and it's to turn your heart back toward that person. So Jesus tells this really stark story here, really clearly laying out what it means to forgive. Massive debt forgiven. Tiny little offense. Beat down. Not okay. The true, the true example, the true life outcome that you have been forgiven is that you forgive. If you are a person marked by unforgiveness, then chances are you have not received the forgiveness of God. So let's talk more about this forgiveness thing, right? A good definition? Forgiveness is giving up my right to hurt you for hurting me. Right? Forgiveness is giving up my right to hurt you for hurting me. To forgive, literally, is to release, to loose, to use Jesus' concept. Right? Now, you might say, I don't have a right to hurt anyone no matter what. Well, I think the scriptures disagree. Well, we'll get there. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's talk a little bit about, just look at it from a couple more New Testament passages. Ephesians 4, 30 to 32. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. My family was on a road trip to Texas one time when I was a kid. I was about 15. My sister would have been 11. My brother would have been 8 or so. My parents had had it by the time we hit about Harrisburg. And my mother made us memorize these verses, and we had to say them to each other every hour on the hour and every time that we got out of the car and into the car. Right? And her idea in this and what she drove home and what apparently stuck, because I'm telling you folks about it, um, is the present tense action here. Right? Notice this is forgiving. This is a present participle. This is an ongoing continuation of an action. This is a posture of the heart. Are you allowed to just be kind from 10 to 11 a.m. on Tuesdays? No. How often does God tell you to be kind? All the time. Your life is to be marked by kindness. Are you, is it ever okay to have a hard heart? Is it ever, just for this hour during the week, I'm going to have a hard heart? No. What God calls you to is tenderheartedness. Right? It is the posture of how you're supposed to be. You are to be marked by kindness. Marked by tenderheartedness. Next phrase. Marked by forgiveness. Right? It is an ongoing, continuous thing. It is a posture of your heart. Not just this tool that we use to make things better so we can move on. Jesus drives this home in the Lord's Prayer. Right? Forgive us our trespasses. How? As we forgive those who trespass against us. Right? We are forgiven as we forgive. We are forgiven and we forgive in the same way that we've been forgiven. You know, and you think about what the level of offense can be. I mean, pastoral ministry brings a lot of these things out. When you're sitting with a couple and there's been infidelity... You know, when you're sitting with some place that there's been abuse, deep, strong hurt, right? Relationships has got torn, betrayal among friends. I mean, these are significantly deep things. And one party in these places of really strong hurt will oftentimes say, you really want me to forgive. How should I forgive? And the very gentle answer from God is, you forgive to the extent that you've been forgiven. How deeply have you been forgiven by God? That is how deeply we are called to forgive. But when we treat forgiveness like a gesture instead of a posture, it can become just sort of like this. Number one, that feels threatening. And if it sounds like invalidation of our story or invalidation of the offense, which you're right, is a massive problem. But we'll get there in a little bit. Hebrews 12, strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. The writer of Hebrews is making this point. Forgiveness, listen closely, forgiveness is not just about you. If you walk in unforgiveness toward an offense, it will affect the people that you are around. It will affect the body of Christ. If you're a part of Parker Ford Church, and you walk in unforgiveness toward anyone, that unforgiveness will birth bitterness in your life, and it will affect the people around you. It will move out from you. We do not live our lives spiritually as islands unto ourselves. When sin enters, and then the sin of unforgiveness enters on top of it, it breeds a defilement of the body of Christ that keeps us 
unhealthy. At any time that as a church we're dealing with consistent, ongoing, relational sin issues, when we're living less, like we know that we should be here in our worship and our relationship with God and and, in our living out the kingdom commandments of Christ and we're living down here, one of the first places we should look as leaders is to unforgiveness. Where is there unforgiveness in our body? Or where are our people misunderstanding forgiveness? Because to understand forgiveness, I think, is to experience a lot of freedom. So what I want to talk about for the rest of our time is, is a process of forgiving. To take this concept of forgiveness outside of like sort of like the churchy definition that we might have gotten used to it by and let it really stand on its own and, and think about what it means. So all that being said, I'd like for you to think about in your own head um, a situation. This could be a current situation or a historic situation um, where you've been offended, right? Where, where you've been offended. And if you can't think of something quickly, then you should check your pulse. Um, because offense, as Jesus puts it, I mean, it's just, it, it does happen and will happen. One of the great things that we live our lives by mistakenly is the idea that we shouldn't be offended. Sure, you should be offended. Are you breathing? Right? Are you broken and fallen? Are the people around you broken and fallen? Then offense is there. It just absolutely is. What we've learned to do is build walls, We've learned to self-protect, right? We've learned to take matters into our own hands. We've learned to wall off parts of ourselves and pieces of ourselves, particularly of our story, particularly of our history, that keep us insulated and away from anyone's ability to ever hurt that part of us again. Now, I'm not saying that's not a, a natural thing, and I'm certainly not a big fan of emotional vomiting, But I do think what we need to do is understand that when we start to shut off pieces of ourselves, then we are not able to present ourselves in a whole way to one another, which means I cannot love you the way that God means for me to love you, and you cannot love me the way that God means for you to love me. And again, this is as broad as people you don't know, all the way down to the most intimate relationships in your life. But we make relational contracts with each other. You don't deal with me like this, and I'll make sure I deal with you like that. You give me this freedom, I'll make sure I don't step over this line. You do this for me, I do this for you. And we live by these relational contracts, but as soon as that contract gets broken, boom, walls, self-protection, distancing, until you pay it back, right? And then uh, I've got a punishment in my head for how long the silent treatment goes or whatever it might be, but here I am manipulating again, and then things just go from bad to worse. When it comes to forgiveness, we have to go straight back to the beginning and allow this thing to work itself out the way that it's meant to as broken, fallen humans who offend each other. The first step in forgiveness is this. You have to acknowledge that an offense actually happened. One of the great lies of what it means to be a southeastern Pennsylvanian is that you can't hurt me. That I can build my life in such a way that I will learn to protect, or I'm strong enough, or I'll just straight up lie to you. Did I offend you? No, everything's fine. One of the great lies that we all tell each other is, I'm okay. You're not okay. No, you're not. Somebody comes to you. Uh, Is something weird in our relationship? Is something strange, right? This can go, and again, most intimate relationship, friendships, spouses, right, parents and kids, 
Is everything all right? Yeah, everything's fine. Everything's not fine. You're lying. Right? So now are you not only not forgiving, now you're a liar on top of it. Right? The flames of hell are licking at your feet at this point. You know, it's sort of like, ah! You know, no, no something has happened, folks. Something has happened. There, you, you should not be strong enough to not be wounded. That, that, that is just a, a complete misidentification of who you are as a human. You are not that strong. You are frail. You are fragile. You're delicate. Right? The ability for a word or a look or a memory or an action, the ability for that to wound is strong. It is ever-present. It is always right there. And you need to understand and give yourself the grace to walk in the fact that you will be offended. And that's all right. You should not walk around with a spirit of offense looking to be offended. But that's another sermon. So you've got to acknowledge that something actually happened. Do not lie to yourself. And do not lie to the other person. Something actually happened. And it might make you feel stupid that you were offended by it. That's okay. But God is trying to teach you something about you. Or trying to teach you something about your relationship with the other person. So you've got to let it be what it is. Even if it makes you feel, even if it makes you feel strange about who you actually are in the midst of the offense. Number two. Think through the offense and its pain. Sit with God and be like, why did this happen? Like, why do I feel like this? It's okay. God's not going to shame you. God's not going to kick you out. God's not going to self-protect or put up walls. He wants to hear it. He wants to be in you. He wants to be completely right there in that place. Right? I mean, think about David. David, we think, can easily think of David as a big whiny baby. But what we know David to be is one of the strongest men that ever lived. And he lived in the concept of offense all the time. How often did Saul offend David? All the time. How much did David talk to God about it? Did you ever read the Psalms? You know, like David's in it. He's thinking through it. Why does this happen in God? I feel like you're rewarding evil people and you're not rewarding people that are following you. And what is with this? I mean, process, process, process. He's in it with his father, the offense, the pain, all of the things that are happening. When he offends God, right? And he cheats with Bathsheba and then he kills Uriah. He's processing it. He's in it. He's with God. He's present. This is what we have to do. We want to run from pain. We want to avoid pain. If there's one thing the cross teaches us, it's you advance toward the hurt. If you advance toward the hurt, then you will be healed from it. If you run from the hurt, it will grow like a sumo wrestler, and it will beat you down. So the second step in forgiveness is you think through it. Like you sit with God, and you're in that spot. You process it. How did this happen? Why did this happen? And then, thirdly, you think with compassion toward the offender. You try and think about it from their point of view. Not to give them an excuse, not to write it off or anything like that. But to be a compassionate person means you put yourself in somebody else's shoes. So in thinking with compassion about what this situation was like on the part of the offender, oftentimes leads you to the, leads you to the point of, oh, well, I actually offended them as well. Not only was I offended, but I was an offender. So we do need to talk. By the way, text messages, Facebook, MySpace, if that still exists, or any of the other things, please, 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 in the name and for the sake of all that is good, gracious, and holy, do not deal with offense over any of those mediums. Right? You need a voice and or a face, preferably both. 
I have no idea why I'm telling you this right now. I just heard it in my head, so here it comes. Right? Screens will increase offense. I've seen it. I've dealt with it. You cannot get... doesn't matter how many emoticons you use. That's not a tone of voice. Right? So there is... To deal with... Heck, to have any healthy relationship. Put your stinking screens away. You need a voice and or a face, preferably both. Yeah? All right. Woo! Number four. All right, recognize the payment for that offense. Recognize the payment for that offense. Here's a Christianity 101 question for you. You ready? What's the payment for sin? Death. Death. Yes. If you sin one time, what do you deserve for forever? Death. All right, spiritual separation from God forever and ever. Sin requires death. Friends, look me in the face. If you are offended, you have the right to demand that that person be put to death. You have the spiritually legal right to demand that they die for what they did to you. About eight years ago, my wife and I stepped into a mentoring relationship with this guy, Keith Yoder. And he mentors us in ministry. He oversees our church. Um, great guy. Wise. Just, uh, just awesome. And uh, he takes care of me and Sherry. We visit him about once a month. I've been in marriage counseling for the last 12 years. Greatest thing we ever did. If you're married, you should, like, you should go to marriage counseling. I don't care. You don't need to be in crisis. Don't wait for the transmission to fall out of your car. Come on, people. Uh, so, uh, so he takes care of us, and he helps us, you know, and he gives us wisdom. And a few years ago, we were, uh, we, were, we were just in one of these marital spots of just deep tension and strife, you know, and we couldn't figure out what it was. And Keith helped us sort of, like, listen to what was going on. Turns out that I had offended my wife really deeply in some ways that I didn't know that I could. And... Uh, which neither let me off the hook nor let her off the hook, right? So we processed this and we thought through it and we talked through it and it got to the point where we had actually named the offense that I had done to her, right? And so Keith looks at Sherry and he says to her, so um, how do you want Jay to pay for this? She was like, what? He's like, what? How do you want Jay to pay for this? Like he offended you. you he, something needs to happen to him now. Right? I mean, he sinned against you. Like, how do you want him to, to pay for this? And she was like, I don't know. I just want to get over it or get past it. He's like, no, 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 no. He's got to pay. Like, he offended you. He needs to pay. He says, can I suggest something? Sure. He said, I think that he should die. Sherry, you know, we're both giggling at this point. But Sherry's like... Really? <laughs> yeah. Yep. He offended you. He knows he offended you. You're aware that he offended you. He needs to die. You can look at him right now and say, sorry, it's been great, but you now have to die because you offended me. He says, like, do you want that? Do you want that to happen? Do you want Jay to die for his sin? No, which I was glad to hear. Um, <laughs> no. Okay, well, then what are we going to do here? Right? Because... Look, friend, the offense has to get paid for. It absolutely must be paid for. Every sin has to be paid for. So where you have been wounded, where you have been offended, that person deserves to die. You have every right to call for their death now. You offended me. You sinned against me. You're going to die. 
But the beauty of forgiveness is that we that should die for our sin toward God and toward one another, because if you think about it, a sin toward a person is also a sin toward God. So now it's a double whammy, and now we're really stuck. Right? All of that penalty, all of that death was put on Christ on the cross. Right? So Sherry can look at me and say, he doesn't need to die. Why? Because she can get over it, because she's a nice person, because she's decided that this conversation was enough. No, that sin had to be paid for, and it was. That's what the cross is. The, the, the penalty for every offense was laid on Jesus on the cross for all time and forever. And so because Christ paid for the offense it gives us as humans the opportunity and the ability to take the penalty that I want that person. To, and sometimes you're offended to the point that, yes, you actually want them to die. But you can't call for their death because you're in the same boat and your penalty was put on Christ too. Which means that the severity of the offense is completely validated. Right? You being an offended person, you being hurt, or you being the one who hurt, is completely legit. And it's also completely freed from because it was put on Jesus. And whether or not the other person ever recognizes that isn't the point. Because you apply the payment for that penalty to Christ. You have the ability to take Jesus' death and to apply the same forgiveness that he did to the people that have offended you. What did Jesus say on the cross? Father, forgive them. All of the offense for all time was bound to Christ. And what did he do for the people who were crucifying him? He loosed them from their offense. You forgive as you've been forgiven. To what extent have you been forgiven? That is how deeply you forgive. You release the pain to Jesus, processing it with him, giving it to him, standing in forgiveness and love, praying for the person who hurt you. Folks, forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. Right? Don't hear me saying everything's, this is going to take just be a relational cure. It's not. Where deep offense has happened, trust is rebuilt, right? It's not, trust is earned. There's other dynamics in this. But the legal, spiritually legal ability for you to be free from the offense that has been done to you or that you have done is completely there in Jesus. The other person does not need to say, will you forgive me? This can be completely one-sided. You can look at your history, at your story, at the people who have hurt you most, who you have no contact with anymore, and you can walk through this process with God without having any contact with them. Forgiveness can be completely one-sided with you forgiving someone, even if that person doesn't want to be forgiven, even if they don't know that they offended, or even if you can't get in touch with them anymore. You can be loosed from the offense that wants to bind you because Jesus' government is stronger. His ways are are better. We are called to be like the, son, the, the father who responds to the deep offense of his son with goodness, generosity, and forgiveness. His son who ran away and who dishonored him and who wasted his inheritance and who now wants to come back in 
is completely forgiven. There's not even a question. The older brother stands off to the side in judgment, anger, entitlement, manipulation. We know the younger son experiences the father's forgiveness. But the older son, the story just ends with an angry, bitter young man that we have no idea what happens. God calls us to mirror his heart, to forgive from our heart. The problem is, is that we misdefine forgiveness. We misuse forgiveness because we misdefine forgiveness. And so we don't walk in the freedom that forgiveness can bring because we don't allow ourselves to think with God in this, to be like Christ in this. We just want to shrug things off or lie to ourselves or lie to others when in reality God would have us walk in forgiveness because we are most certainly walking in offense because we are fallen, broken humans who live with other fallen, broken humans. And the call to God is to take upon ourselves a posture of forgiveness that walks out for us the deep love of Christ that completely validates the work of Christ on the cross because when you and I don't forgive, we say that wasn't enough. Jesus' death wasn't enough to pay for their offense. I'm now going to hurt you a little bit more. I'm not going to forgive. I'm going to make you pay for this. But in so doing, we work against the very thing that Jesus died for. I'm not saying it's easy. What I am saying is that it's freeing. And if we allow ourselves to take a new definition, a better definition of what it means to be people who walk in a posture of forgiveness, I think that we can walk in the authority of binding and loosing that will release new levels of spiritual authority and life in your life and in the life of the community that you are a part of like you've never known as we walk in forgiveness. Let's pray. God, thank you for forgiving us. We thank you for the beauty of a restored relationship with you that comes through forgiveness. God, walk each of us as your children into the binding and loosing the freedom that comes as we walk in forgiveness toward one another, receiving yours and being channels of it to those around us. Give us grace, God, to be fallen, broken humans who live with one another and who walk not with gestures, but with postures of forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.